Radiation exposure. It's not just something that happens to people after a bomb goes off and there's fallout. It's an inescapable part of every step on the nuclear fuel chain, starting with uranium mining. Miners who worked in uranium mines up to 1971 have been somewhat covered for their resulting health problems by the government under the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, or RECA. But uranium mining continued after 1971, until some of the mines shut down in 1987, others in 1990. And those workers have had no recourse to government compensation for their radiation-related illnesses. So when you hear a former uranium miner tell you, There is no difference between the illnesses between the guys that worked before 71 and us guys that worked after 71. We're sick with the same stuff and more. Because we started at a younger age, we're more affected, we get weird things along with the same regular diseases. We'd really like them to just do what's right by the American people that gave their lives for this effort. Even though the Cold War was over, we were told every day we were still doing what we needed to do to keep our country safe from the bad guys. So, call it Cold War or don't, we did our part. We shouldn't be having to fight these people to get our compensation. We shouldn't have to argue with them at all. They should do it because it's the right thing to do. Government doing something because it's the right thing to do. Well, if that's what you've been counting on to compensate for illnesses you developed as a result of radiation exposure from doing Cold War work in U.S. uranium mines or being downwind of atmospheric A-bomb tests, by now you know without a doubt that you are stuck in that awful seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a special report on the people most impacted by the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, or RECA. It's the government program intended to provide a one-time payment to uranium miners and unsuspecting civilian downwinders. But the areas covered were limited to certain counties in only three states, and only uranium miners who worked before 1971 were eligible. Now there's a proposed extension of RECA in Congress that would correct some of these omissions. But Congress has only one year to pass the bill, or all of RECA's benefits will go away. Where does that bill stand now? We will talk with downwinders, a uranium miner, all of whom are activists who have been campaigning for its passage. And you'll hear some difficult truths about exactly what radiation exposure actually does to people's bodies and their babies. We will also have Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness 
and more honest nuclear information than we will ever get out of the International Olympic Committee. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, July 20th, 21, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off with... Nuclear Hot Seed Nuclear Hot Seed Nuclear Hot Seed None that's out of week The Tokyo Olympics with women's softball games being played in Fukushima's Azuma Stadium only 20 kilometers, 11.2 miles away from the still radioactive remains of the Fukushima Daiichi triple meltdown. To learn more about the elevated radiation risks that women face as opposed to the male standards that are used, check out last week's Nuclear Hot Seat number 525, and you'll understand exactly why evil numbnuts is posed by the Tokyo Olympics, and they are... Nuclear Hot Seat, numbnuts out a week! Now here's this week's special feature on the Radiation Compensation Act, or RECA. We're featuring three interviews with people directly involved in working to get the expanded RECA passed by Congress. They'll provide you with both the political and the personal side of what RECA is supposed to do, what it has and hasn't done, and why the time is short to get this extension passed. First, Mary Dixon. She is a Salt Lake City journalist and writer whose award-winning play, Exposed, puts a human face on the cost of nuclear testing. She has been recognized by the Alliance for Nuclear Responsibility for her lifetime of work on behalf of downwinders like herself and regularly speaks out against the resumption of nuclear testing as well as her downwinder information talks. We previously interviewed Mary for Nuclear Hot Seat number 494 on December 8, 2021. Here, she talks specifically about RECA, what it is, why it's needed, and what is going to be required to pass it before it expires in 2022. We spoke on Thursday, July 15, 2021. Mary Dixon, thank you for joining us this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's a pleasure to be here again. We're going to be talking about the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, or RECA. But first, let's get a little bit of background on you. And even though we had you featured on episode 494 of Nuclear Hot Seat in December of 2020. Remind us about your background, the source of your concerns on nuclear issues, and specifically downwinders. All right, sure. My story is a common one where I'm from. Um, I've told it a lot of times, so we won't be forgotten. I am a downwinder from Salt Lake City, Utah, the neighborhood I grew up in there were many people who had cancers and tumors. My sister and I counted 54 of them in a five block area. She died in 2001 of an autoimmune disease that she always thought was related to fallout. I had thyroid cancer. I've done this work for three decades. I've worked to advocate for and support downwinders and increase awareness. I have been working on expanding the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act for decades again. And I wrote a play called Exposed that told my story. And it's basically all true. It lays out not only what happened to me and my sister, but also the kind of background of nuclear testing and all the people who were affected in America by that. 
tell us about RICO, what it is, what it is intended to do, and how well it has fulfilled that mission. The Radiation Exposure Compensation Act finally passed in 1990. This is years after people have been suffering and living with the effects. It was very limited in scope, primarily that was for political reasons. They decided that 23 rural counties in Northern Arizona, Southern Utah, and Southeastern Nevada could be compensated if, if people could prove they lived in those areas during certain time periods and got one of 18 kinds of cancer, they were entitled to $50,000 in compensation. Basically, the government decided that this would be presumptive. In other words, there's no way you can prove definitively that's where you got your cancer. But they knew enough and had enough background to say that your cancer likely was caused by fallout and we will compensate you. So that's the act. It never was broad enough. For instance, I grew up in Salt Lake City, which is Northern Utah. So Northern Utah was never covered. Wyoming, Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico were never covered. Even Trinity downwinders were not included under RECA. And obviously a lot of them have already died. In fact, we say that we are literally dying waiting for justice. So it was a start. I applaud them for doing it and for making it presumptive but it was never broad enough. It also, the $50,000, as anyone who's had cancer knows, doesn't even cover a chemo treatment. So the amount was very small. It was also not inclusive enough. And I am really happy to see that Senator Crapo and Senator Lujan are introducing a bill to amend that act. It would up the amount to 150,000. It would change the time frame so that it begins September 24th, 1944, which would include Trinity downwinders. It also would add all of Idaho, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Montana. It's a bill we've waited a long time for. We're hopeful. It also includes uranium mine workers. You'll hear more from them. They can give you more details on that. But as far as for downwinders, we are veterans of the Cold War. We never enlisted. No one will ever fold the flag over our graves. And those of us living downwind should be seen as patriots. We sacrificed for our country, uh, not knowing we were. So there's no question the government killed and sickened so many Americans, so many of its own people. It's definitely a bipartisan issue. I'm happy to say that the amendments to RICA that are being introduced in the House and Senate are bipartisan. People from both parties are signing on. This is not a political issue, it's a social justice issue. And to me, it's a matter of morality. And there's a real urgency right now to expanding this and extending it because without action, the funds for RECA expire in July of 2022. They're just gone. So one thing we do know is that people are still living with the effects. They're still getting health problems. They're still developing related illnesses. Their cancers are returning. And when you look at the genetic damage, 
we've got more generations being affected. So I think that a lot of people are still facing staggering medical bills. So this act will go a long way to righting a huge wrong. What is the content of this extension of RICA? And where are we in terms of the timing of the implementation? Sure. Well, the bills are being introduced. There's a draft bill they have sent us. The language is not solidified. They're trying to get it extended for another 19 years beyond when the bill is passed. So we still have to see it introduced. And they are right now gathering sponsors for the bills. They're hoping for bipartisan. They're looking toward the Justice Committee of the Senate because the Justice Department actually administers RECA. So they're the ones who have the fund. So we are just hoping that this time it will finally pass, that it it will be introduced, it will get widespread support, and it will pass. Interestingly, there was a subcommittee in the House that had a hearing on this, and I was a little nervous about how they would respond to the bill. Every one of them said that they were supportive of seeing justice done, which to me was very hopeful, very hopeful. So I'm hoping that that happens again. I'm hoping that more sponsors sign on. I'm hoping that it sees the light of day, that RICA is expanded, that it is extended. What can listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat do to support you in having RICA extended for the additional 20 years? You know what? It would be so wonderful if they would contact their senators and their House of Representatives offices to say that this is an important issue, that it's a matter of social justice, that it's doing the right thing and express the urgency of it, because it's, it's never been more urgent given that it's going to sunset. So I would hope they would do that. If any of their senators are on the Senate Judiciary Committee, that is an extremely important committee to reach. So whatever they can do to help get that word out, we have congressional fact sheets we're happy to share. There's a lot of material we can share. And again, there's plenty of research to say this is warranted. When that bill was passed in 1990, some of the studies we're not even done yet. So that the huge National Cancer Institute study that was in 1997, that was not factored into this bill. There have been many studies since. So they show that it's warranted, that it's time. So if they would do that, that would be so wonderful. Okay, listeners, you've got your marching orders. (laughs) And Mary Dixon, Thank you for the work that you are doing. Thank you. By the way, how is your health now? My health is good. I'm a lucky one. My health is good, which kind of makes me feel like I have more of a responsibility. I I had one downwinder friend. She's since passed, but she always said to me, you've got to keep doing this. The rest of us are too sick. Luckily, my health is good. I'm glad to hear that. May that continue. And Mary Dixon, I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate what you do. Downwinder activist, Mary Dixon. This second interview is with Downwinder Sherry Hanna. 
She grew up in Arizona without understanding the consequences to her family and community from radioactive fallout from the 100 Nevada test site above ground nuclear bomb tests. She is now a downwinder advocate and takes it as a personal mission to inform and educate as many people as possible. We spoke on Thursday, July 15, 2021. Sherry Hanna, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. Sherry, you're very involved with the entire RECA program. Give us some background on yourself first, though. Where are you from? And growing up, what did you know about nuclear testing and possible radiation dangers? I am a native Arizonan. I was born in Winslow and I grew up in Flagstaff and Prescott. And when I was growing up as a kid, I heard bits and pieces about nuclear testing and what was going on in Nevada. But it wasn't until later on in my life that I fully understood the ramifications and the outcome of what the nuclear testing that was done in Nevada was going to bring about. You had very personal experiences with the impact of this radiation on members of your family. If you wouldn't mind, share that information with us. In 1982, my father, Ken Wayman, was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. Did he simply live in the area, or was he working in the nuclear industry? No, he was a newspaper reporter in Winslow, Flagstaff, and Prescott area. So he, he was in northern Arizona, which is one of the affected areas from the fallout, and he was a downwinder. But at that time, nobody knew anything about, as, as much as they do now, about the downwinders. And when he was diagnosed in 1982, he took chemo treatments for a year, but then uh, he lost his battle with cancer. And then it wasn't until 1990 when RICA was passed and the information about RICA started filtering out to the public that we became aware of that and what the RICA bill covered, and we started doing our research and discovered that because my dad was in the affected area during the 1950s and that he packed one of the cancers that is covered under the RICA program, that we were eligible to receive compensation, and we did. We applied for that. My mother had passed away, and so me and my siblings applied for and received the compensation. And then in 2011, my husband, John Hanna Sr., who also grew up in northern Arizona, was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And we had, obviously, with my dad getting all the information on the downwinders then, we immediately thought that, "Uh uh-oh, this is a downwinder cancer, and it was. And like I said, since my husband grew up in the affected areas that were covered under RECA, We applied for the compensation and received it, but he battled cancer for two years and passed away in 2013. So I've lost both my father and my husband to cancers related to the downwinders. And myself, having grown up here in northern Arizona, I am a downwinder. And so you have that hanging over your head. Luckily, I I am in good health. I haven't had any serious illnesses or any cancer, but I do go for my cancer screenings every year that are supported by the RECA program. They're free, and the early detection is your best protection. So if they find anything through these cancer screenings, they notify me, and then it's up to me to 
follow up with a doctor on that. But you always have that in the back of your head, you know, that you grew up in the affected areas. And so you are, you know, you could be contract one of the 19 cancers that are covered under the RECA program. You mentioned the impact on the larger community that you grew up with. What has been shown by an evaluation of this population of people? Well, what I decided to do was to make it my mission to go out and inform my classmates and fellow citizens about the downwinders and what they are, because a lot of people still don't know about it. So I've been speaking to civic groups, uh, I go to school boards, I go to class reunions, I get a great response of that, but also in helping with the downwinders, when the RECA program was passed back in 1990, there was a section of Clark County and Mojave County that were omitted from the RECA bill, and they were not covered under compensation. Do you know why that was? Well, there's been several theories. The most common one I hear is that the legal description that was submitted with the bill, for whatever reason, uh, left out portions of Clark and Mojave County. And then since it was passed by Congress, in order to fix that after they realized the mistake, you have to go back through the process, the congressional process again, and it was never able to pass to bring those sections that were originally left out back in. So that has been the fight that I've been working with congressional and senatorial representatives. And uh, also I went around through Arizona, Nevada, and Utah and met before city councils, board of commissioners, county supervisors, and asked them to submit resolutions in support of bringing Clark County and Mojave County, that portion that was left out, bringing them into compensation. And there was great support for that. And I submitted all those resolutions to Congressman Paul Gosar, who at the time was supporting a bill in support of bringing those areas that were left out into compensation. And he attached them to the original bill to show that not only Arizona and Nevada, but also Utah, who's been greatly affected by the downwinders, was in support of that. And unfortunately, that bill never passed. So I'm so glad to see now that we're trying to, through other agencies, through other groups, we're all coming together to try and help these areas that were never included, for one, in the original RECA bill, and the areas that were left out of the RECA bill will be covered also. So that I'm so glad to be helped to be a part of that. Give us a picture of what the services or benefits are of having RECA cover these areas, these geographic areas. You've mentioned compensation and you've mentioned cancer screenings. Are there other benefits as well? That I know of, that I'm aware of, I think those screenings are very important because you go to these North Country Healthcare and Flagstaff, and they have satellite offices around northern Arizona. So you can go to one that's closer to where you live, and that helps because a lot of these people now that are showing up uh, as downwinders, we're older, we're the baby boomers, and so, you know, we don't like to travel long distances. These screenings are so important because they get you into the downwinder system, and they provide a chest X-ray, blood work where they look specifically for cancer markers and 
I've been told that when you have blood work done, if you're not specifically looking for certain cancer markers, a lot of times they're not detected. So they test for certain cancer markers. Uh, they do a stool sample. They get a history of you, and you're in the system. So if you ever have to apply for compensation, then it already shows that you're in the system as a downwinder. And they also, at the Flagstaff location, they have an individual there that helps people fill out their application because the application is 25 pages long. Wow. It's very intimidating, especially for older people. And so once you have to start going through the application and see what is required, the information that you have to provide the Department of Justice who makes the decision on whether you get compensation or not, there's a lot of things you have to provide. And so what they do is they help you fill out the application. Now, what I mainly do in Yavapai County is I put people in touch of the, the resources that can help them get the information they need. And that's a big help because, like I said, when you look at that application and everything you that you're having to supply to send in with your application, not only medical records, but proof that you were here during the time, whether it was school records, religious records, or your parents, you know, if you were a child, obviously, like I was, it'd be my parents' information, if they were, were voters or voter registration. Charlotte Hall here has a resource center for downwinders that they have all the old phone books. So you make an appointment with Charlotte Hall, you go in, and they will look up your parents to see if they're in any of the phone books, and then they will copy the page and certify it, that it's a true and correct document from Charlotte Hall. And that's something that you can attach to your application to show that your parents were here during that time. So what I like to do is help provide resources for people to help them get the information they need to submit with their application. That is a profoundly simple and elegant way to find out if someone has lived in a location, to look in phone books for what somebody's address was, and that works even if you're going back decades. Now, looking at the work that you're doing now, is that specifically and only for people in Arizona who might be downwinders, or is it applicable to other states that would be covered by this extension of RECA? Well, I, I do have my name out there. As I mentioned before, when I was traveling throughout Arizona, Nevada, and Utah, I still get emails from people that I were in contact with when I was out there trying to gain support for the bills in Congress at that time. So I do whatever I can. I know that there are other downwinder groups in those areas, and I have worked with the Mojave County downwinders in working with them to help uh, individuals up there too. So whenever I do a presentation, when I, when I go before these groups or class reunions or board of supervisors in, in support of the downwinders and, and, you know, the downwinder anniversary is January 27th every year and it's a national downwinders day. And every January I go before the Prescott city council the Yavapai County Board of Supervisors, Prescott Valley City Council, Chino Valley City Council, Dewey Humboldt in our area, and remind everyone that this is National Downwinder Day and that the downwinders are out there and the plight that they are faced with every day, you know, either fighting a cancer or a serious illness that's related to the downwinders, and just reminding people of what it is 
and I, I get great response whenever I do that because there's still a lot of people who do not know what the downwinders are, have never heard of it before. If people wish to get in contact with you, having heard this interview, where can they do so? Um, my email is Hannah, H-A-N-N-A, 132 at yahoo.com. And I will answer your email. My first name is Sherry Hannah. And so please send me an email. And that's how I do most of my connections. People email me and then I can help them in whatever way they need help. And are you a group or is this just you? This is just me. I call myself a downwinder advocate. I do right now have a website, Justice and the number four downwinders. That's my Facebook page, and I also I'm doing an online petition right now, and the website for that is Justice the Number Four Downwinders at Weebly.com, where people can go on and sign on to the online petition to support the legislation and work that's being done on behalf of the downwinders. You're doing very important work that is of direct and immediate importance to a large number of people. And we will post links that you have just mentioned. We will post the links on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode. For now, Sherry Hanna, I wish you every success with your work. And if Nuclear Hot Seat can be of service to you in the future, just let us know. Thank you so much for all you do in helping us. Thank you. That was Downwinder Advocate, Sherry Hanna. We will have links up to all of the contact points for this week's show on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 526. And we will be back with our third interview in just a moment. But first, Nuclear Hot Seat is now in its 11th year of weekly programs. And quite frankly, there's no end in sight because it obviously fills a need to get our voice together and out to people who want to hear it. After 10 years and more than 525 programs, Nuclear Hot Seat has grown to become an important resource for people wanting to know the truth about the nuclear threat to our future and what we can all do to help fight against it. But as I've said before, the online world keeps evolving and Google is changing its algorithms to favor websites that load fastest. That means that if Nuclear Hot Seat doesn't do the necessary upgrading and reconfiguring of our website, even people who put in the proper search terms, you, we, and our important message, will not be found. That's why Nuclear Hot Seat is embarking on a total website rebuild, not a cosmetic moving around of the pieces into a pretty new template. It's a back-end rebuild and upgrade, to bring the website into alignment with how the internet works now. With all these episodes, it's a massive job and the biggest expense undertaken in the history of the show. In order to accomplish it, now more than ever, we're going to need your help. Here's how. Right now, go to the website, nuclearhotseat.com, click on the big red donate button and follow the prompts. That's where you can donate any amount Or set up a monthly donation of $5. Now look, that's the same as a cup of coffee and a tip here in the U.S. So if you value Nuclear Hot Seat and want to see us continue to be found online, now is the time to support us with a donation. Know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. 
Now here's the third of this week's special featured interviews on the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, or RECA. Our third interview is with Linda Evers. She is a former uranium miner and president of the Post-71 Uranium Workers Committee. She worked in uranium mining and production from 1976 to 1982, including during both her pregnancies. As you will hear, her working conditions while a miner were often harrowing, and the resulting consequences for her health and the lives of her two children graphically represent just some of the dangers of radiation exposure. We often speak of that danger, but rarely are we allowed to understand the magnitude of that impact and what it means in human terms. Linda allowed us a glimpse into that world, and just so you know, it's strong stuff. We spoke on Friday, July 16, 2021. Let's start out with you and your personal story as regards uranium mining and what it did to you. Where are you from and when did you first start to work in uranium? Well, I was born and raised right here in Grants, New Mexico. And as soon as I graduated high school in 1976, I graduated the end of May. I went to work in the, in the Kermagee Mill in July of 1976 because, well, they were paying crazy money for kids right out of high school. It was a lot of money. What was the first job that you had there? I started on the labor gang, which was about, oh, I don't know, 35, 40 of us. We were in charge of all the crap jobs. We shoveled floors. We scraped junk out of acid tanks during shutdown. We were just kind of the do-it-all group until we had to spend 90 days on the labor gang or the bull gang, whichever they called it. And then we got placed. I went from 90 days on the labor gang to the crusher. But part of our jobs on the labor gang was to check the level of the tailings pond waters. And at the time, in 76, the way we did that was we had a little dinghy rowboat that we rode out to the center of the tailings pond and took a reading from a gauge that was out there in the middle of the pond. And it happened every shift, so it happened three times a day. In uh, one afternoon, we were working swing shift, and we went to go get the reading before it got too dark, and the wind was blowing, and it actually flipped our little dinghy over, and me and another employee got thrown into the tailings pond and had to swim back to the bank, and we got in the truck and drove back down and told the foreman what happened, and we didn't even get to go take a shower. He was upset that we lost the boat. And we went back to work. We didn't shower. I mean, the best we did was wash our face and hands and went back to work. I didn't shower until I got home. So there was instances like that that should have been dealt with a little better, I feel. And explain briefly what the contents of a tailing pond are and what the danger might be in being exposed to it and being dunked in it. Well, it's everything that they used chemically to leach the yellow cake out of the ore. So I'm not sure what the list of chemicals is totally, but it's got to be some pretty harsh stuff because they uh, leach yellow cake out of dirt with it. And then, you know, it has a radioactive capacity as well because, well, it's leaching yellow cake out of dirt, basically. I'm not sure what all is in there, but it's acid is a part of it, 
because they, Kermagee had their own acid plant on site that was between the rod mill where they added water and liquefied the ore and then it pumped to the mill side where they put it in giant, giant, giant vats of a chemical mixture to start the leaching process. And just to be clear, when you say yellow cake, you're referring to the uranium. Yes. Yellow cake is a mineral that's leached out of the ore that the, comes when it's finished product. It's the consistency of flour, and it's yellow, canary yellow, bright yellow. And that's what they dropped into 55-gallon drums and sent to Oklahoma City for processing into further products like plutonium and such. And yellow cake is uranium. Yes. What kind of radiation protective gear did the company provide for you and the other workers while you were doing these jobs that exposed you to the yellow cake? There wasn't any radiation protection. What we were provided was occasionally the same masks that we're wearing for COVID. We were supplied those a couple a month, even though they get clogged up in about an hour in the crusher. We were supplied hard hats, safety glasses, steel toe boots. We were not supplied radiation protective equipment. We were supplied with just regular protective equipment. And was this lack of attention to radiation exposure typical of the way Kerr-McGee, the mine you were with at the time, operated? All of them. Everybody in this area operated that way. United Nuclear Home State, Chevron, Ohio, all of them. Because the government, who is constantly responsible for our safety, doesn't hold their feet to the fire. They don't make them protect the workers. The government has always been responsible for our safety. Always. No matter who was buying the yellow cake. Because that's one of their favorite things to say as well. We cut you off at 71 because the United States wasn't the only buyer of the yellow cake. Well, I'm sorry, the government was still responsible for our safety, no matter who was buying it. What were some of the other jobs you had that exposed you to radiation? Well, as a part of the labor gang, I also worked in the yellow cake dryers, which were just humongous dryer drying machines that dried this yellow cake from a moist mud-like substance to a powder fine that we could dump down a chute and put in a a 55 gallon drum and uh, when we worked in the yellow cake area we were supplied a uh, paper white paper overalls and a secondary mask if we didn't have a dirty one that we had had in our pocket for a month but that was the end of that i mean gamma radiation can penetrate a foot a three foot of concrete like nothing's there like it's nothing's there well the result speaks for itself our people are dying with weird cancers, the same and worse things that our predecessors that get compensation. And we're dying at a much younger age because we started working at a younger age, so we were affected more. While you were on this job in 1978, you became pregnant. What was the response of management when you told them? What were you asking for and what was their response? Well, at the time, I was unaware of any kind of maternity leave. So I went to HR to see what was going on with pregnant people. And at the time I was working in the crusher and their response to me telling them that I was pregnant was that I was safe, baby was safe, nothing wrong with working until my belly got so big I couldn't reach the belt to pick trash off the belt. 
when you gave birth, what were some of the problems that you had with your first baby? Well, he seemed like he was hungry all the time, so I had him to the baby doctor several times, and they said, well, just feed him more, feed him more. Well, then he just started puking everywhere, so he could eat until his stomach was full, and then he'd throw up. There was some muscles and intestines that were not lined up in his gut properly. He was born May 12th, and on the 4th of July, they had him doing surgery on him to straighten his guts out because he was literally starving to death. The muscles had cut off the tube that goes from the stomach to the intestine, so he could eat until his stomach was full and get a little bit of nutrition, but then he'd throw it all up, and he was starving to death, basically. As for the cause of this, you got two different sets of information from two different doctors. Who were they, and what was it that they said? The doctor that was treating my son in an Albuquerque hospital said that, yes, this is a common birth defect, but the way his intestines were rolled up, he could not explain that. And when I asked him if it had anything, could possibly have anything to do with radiation exposure, He's like, oh, well, that explains everything. Your son's probably not a common birth defect. It was probably the exposure. When I told that to the doctor here in town that screens us at the time, screened us for exposures and such, he basically called the doctor in Albuquerque a bold-faced liar that radiation does not make people sick. And I'm sorry, the government's been experimenting on people since the 30s and 40s. They're fully aware of how sick it makes people and how Badly, it damages children and human beings in general. What motivation did that other doctor have for telling you that your baby was safe and putting down the doctor who told you there was a danger from radiation? Well, the one doctor was employed by the companies that did our physicals and made sure we were healthy enough to go to work. And the doctor in Albuquerque had no knowledge of radiation exposure in our lives. When he found out that we were being exposed, he himself, Lanny Harris was the doctor's name, thought that somebody should be looking into the children that we were having back in the day. And that was 40 years ago. Of course, he didn't do it. No doctor in this town would do it. As far as I know, nobody looked into the baby stuff until here the last five years or so. You also had a second baby. What was the impact on her? She was born without hips, totally. The leg bone was like the end of your finger. There was no protrusion off to the side with a ball joint. Her pelvis was flat. There was no cup to put a ball joint in. So from nine months old until almost five years old, she had six surgeries to simply place the bones where they were supposed to be in her body, and her body started growing the right parts. But then after they started growing them, then they started growing them like the ball joint wasn't all the way in the socket, so it was deforming the ball joint. So she had to have more surgeries to cut the top of her thigh bone off and angle the ball joint into the socket, and they took a wedge of bone out of her pelvis and made a slit and inserted it lower so the outside of the cup would come down a little bit more, and pins and screws and plates to hold that all together. And They fixed one side, and then they had to go in and do the other side. So 
she learned to walk about five times, and then um, by the time she was about six, she could, was out of that zone. She had hips and were working, and then at 29, she had to have the right one replaced, and now she's going to the doctor to have the left one replaced at 39. That is painful information to hear. We often hear that there are birth defects, there are problems, and I thank you for being as honest as you are about the extent of this because it really paints the picture. It needs to be heard because they were telling us that we and our babies were totally safe. There was nothing for us to fear, you know? So you're making a lot of money. It's real easy to hear stuff like that and go with it. And they could have been just as honest about the effects because there's still people that would have come and got the money. I'm going to be sick in 40 years. Give me the money now. In 1993, when you were 35, you dislocated your thumb and went to see a specialist about it. While he was reviewing your x-rays, what did he ask you? Well, he asked me about my family history of arthritis, which at the time, we do have arthritis, but it's not crippling. At the time, my 93-year-old grandmother still crocheted and knitted beanies for us at Christmas. So I had a little arthritis, but genetically, we don't have any bone or joint issues or anything like that. And he says, well, what about exposure to radiation? And I looked at him because I lived in Kansas at the time, the east side of Kansas. I said, well, yeah, I mean, I went to work in the uranium mill when I was 18, right out of high school, and worked for seven, eight, nine years, something like that. Why? And he says, well, it looks to me like we better x-ray everything because your joints are grinding away like degenerative joint disease. So we started x-raying things, and I have degenerative bones and degenerative joints, and the thumbs in my right hand, they fused the end knuckle, replaced two joints, and then went in my wrist and shortened ligaments to tighten everything down on the joints. And about the time I got my right hand finished, my left hand did the same thing, so I had to have that done. I got two vertebrae in my back is doing it. My right knee is doing it. I've been to the chiropractor for a week now trying to get my right shoulder to stay in place because, well, it's degenerating too and it doesn't want to stay in place. And this degeneration can be caused by exposure to radiation. It can. And because of my age, when I was diagnosed at 41, that's absolutely what they contributed to because I wasn't old enough. I had a little bit of arthritis coming on, but I was not ate up with arthritis. There's no family history of any kind of disease. These kind of diseases are unknown in our family, both sides, my mother and my father. So, I mean, that's what he directly correlated it to because of my age and my lack of other things that would have caused it. So you began working in the uranium mining industry in 1976. RICA only extends to workers from 1971 and before that, people who were working in the industry before that. What help, if any, has RICA been regarding the problems you faced and your various illnesses? Zero. If you worked after 1971, there is nothing in place for us. 
And in this little town where everybody knows about uranium, there's a big sign in the emergency room that says, don't come here asking for your uranium field test. We don't do that. So our people are being totally ignored. And the, the thing that strikes me as so ironic, or maybe that's the wrong word, is that for seven or eight years before 1971 is when the compensation stops, but the peak of uranium mining was in 1979. 29,872 people worked between Laguna and Gallup in 1979. So why did they cut off the compensation before the peak of uranium excavation was over? Very good question. Now, you are currently working on getting the RECA extension and expansion passed. What is the work you are doing, and what are you seeking to have included in the bill? Well, we'd just like to see them extend the compensation to include everybody, by which I mean right up till they shut down in 1985. I mean, there's already a program in place for the guys that cleaned it up. Everybody around us has got a compensation program of some sort. They have simply excluded the post-71 workers. We have done everything that a political office has told us to do. We've done petition drives, letter drives. We've organized. We've grouped up with other grassroots groups that are trying to protect water and land and people. We've traveled to Washington. We've lobbied. We've begged. We've borrowed. We've stolen to try to get these politicians to do the right thing by this one group of people. If you didn't know better, you'd think we were Vietnam vets. They shun us. They treat us like crap. They won't help us with our medical issues. Everybody acts like we're trying to get something we don't deserve. We busted our butts for that uranium. We busted it every day. If you didn't show up for your shift, if you didn't make quota, you got fired. We busted our butts every day. No different than the guys before us. And Dr. S.K. Sood over at UNM Hospital has done research and shown that there is no difference between the illnesses between the guys that worked before 71 and us guys that worked after 71. We're sick with the same stuff and more because we started at a younger age. We're more affected. We get weird things along with the same regular diseases. And the other thing we're asking for, we'd like to see the RECA program expand the compensatable diseases. Right now, they only compensate five lung diseases and three kidney diseases. Uranium destroys entire bodies, not just lungs and kidneys. So we'd like to see an expansion on that. We'd really like them to just do what's right by the American people that gave their lives for this effort. Even though the Cold War was over, we were told every day we were still doing what we needed to do to keep our country safe from the bad guys. So call it Cold War or don't. We did our part. We shouldn't be having to fight these people to get our compensation. We shouldn't have to argue with them at all. They should do it because it's the right thing to do. Are you doing this work on your own? Are you with a group? Are you in a coalition? When we started this back in 2007, a friend of mine and myself were working on it, winging it on our own, and then we met with Southwest Research and Information Center uh, gentleman by the name of Chris Shuey that advised us that we'd make more of a statement if we'd organize. 
So we organized. We generated a committee. In the first committee meeting, we had 35 people show up. And 10 years later, it was me and my friend again. And that's what we've been doing for the last seven years. It's just me and Lizzie and mostly me. I do what I can, but, you know, I have some health issues that have to be taken care of. So sometimes I have to take the time out. And then sometimes you kick the wrong politician and their little staffers get all hurt and won't let you talk to them anymore. So there's that too. <laughs> if people wish to support you in this work, do you have a website? Is there an email? How can they get in contact with you? Now we're doing everything through the MACE Alliance. Well, it costs money to keep websites open, and we run on donations, and the donations dried up way before the mission did. So we got Southwest Uranium with Susan Gordon. She has mm -hmm. some stuff online. My contact information's there. Her contact information's there. We will, of course, post your contact information up on the website with this episode. Linda Evers, first of all, I'm so sorry that you have been exposed in this way, had your health and the health of your children damaged by the legacy of uranium mining, and that you are continuing to have to deal with these issues, let alone push for potential compensation through this extension of RECA. And I want to thank you for all that you have done on behalf of yourself and the others who have been harmed by uranium in your area. And also, thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you so much for helping us with this. Sometimes it's just what you're doing that helps us more than anything. I appreciate the time you're giving to us, lady. Thank you very much. Former uranium miner and president of the Post-71 Uranium Workers Committee, Linda Evers. We will have links up to contact information for Linda and all of today's interviewees on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 526. To be clear, what is being asked for in this extension of the RECA bill is to extend RECA for an additional 23 years through 2045, increase compensation for all claimants to $150,000, expand eligibility to all uranium workers who were active from 1972 to 1990, expand the geographical eligibility for compensation for exposure to atmospheric atomic testing to cover all of New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, and Utah, and expand the geographical eligibility to cover persons present in Guam during the atmospheric testing in the Pacific and making veterans who participated in the cleanup of the Inuitak Atoll eligible for compensation. Remember that while RECA is at risk of going away, the impacts from radiation exposure are not. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. Two places for you to become involved this week. Nuclear Games is a new animated web documentary in manga format. It's designed to educate and engage, and it's going to be launched on July 23rd. We will have a link up to it on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 526. 
And that's where you will also find a link to a petition to tell the White House and Congress, don't sacrifice our economy and environment to a nuclear bailout. Easy ways for any of you to become more involved and more informed. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 20th, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclearinternational.com, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, grandcanyontrust.org, finance.yahoo.com, mainpublic.org, fairwinds.org, mainichi.jp, insider.com, reuters.com, marianwildart.wordpress.com, and the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Hey, make certain that you don't miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat by getting it delivered to your email inbox every week. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, put in your first name and an email address, bam, bam. You automatically get a link to the episode and a short outline of what you will find inside. Couldn't be easier. Our gratitude this week to longtime supporter of Nuclear Hot Seat, Tara Johnson Douglas, who has been instrumental in the posting of the show on social media for several years now. She's leaving us to travel around the country in a retirement situation. We wish her well, and there's an opening on the team. If you would like to help us get Nuclear Hot Seat out on Facebook and other social media platforms, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We'd love to have you be part of the team. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to that exact same email address, info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment and go to nuclearhotseat.com and look for that big red button. Click on it and anything you can do to help, we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that when it comes to all things nuclear, not only what you don't know can hurt you, chances are it already has. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.